Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Our text this morning is John 15, 9 to 17. Terry's going to come and read it for us. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, as you keep my commands, sorry, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you. Love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. All right, so you might notice this is not in line with the misquoted series that we had been. We were going through this series on um, things the Bible doesn't say, but that we say all too often. And, uh, you know, after uh, I was away a couple weeks ago, um, I came back and thought, you know, between now and our annual meeting, um, I want to address some of the insecurities that I'm feeling personally and some of the insecurities that I think we feel as a church in this season. Uh, and so that's just kind of where my heart was led, and so that's where we're going. Um, so thanks for sticking with us through it all. Uh, and so today we turn to this uh, John chapter 15. Um, these Some of the last words of Jesus recorded in John. John uh, is going to wrap up the gospel fairly soon. Um, In the next few chapters, Jesus is going to go and be arrested and go to the cross. And so these last couple of chapters, 15 to 17, are Jesus' kind of farewell discourse, we call them, his farewell words. Now, I have only, I think, if I'm right, I have only once in my life voluntarily left a church that I didn't need to leave. So throughout my life, I'm I'm a very committal person. Um, I go somewhere and I stick And I want to serve, and I want to give, and I want to care. And so there's only one time that I can remember in my life that I voluntarily left a church that I didn't actually have to leave. Like, we didn't move. My job didn't change. There was no necessary reason that we had to. Uh, And that was early in our marriage. Um, I was serving as an intern at a church, and I was pursuing ordination in the denomination that the church was with. And I decided not to pursue ordination in that denomination and I was going to switch and, and move denominations, so I felt like we should change churches. Now, we didn't have to change churches in order to move to this other denomination. It just, it's what I thought we needed to do at the time. And, and I'll be honest, I did not leave well. I didn't. I, I, I uh, pretty suddenly uh, broke to my pastor that I wasn't going to be ordained in that denomination. I wasn't going to pursue the ordination in that denomination anymore um, and that I needed to go. And it was only a a few weeks transition, I think. It wasn't even that long between my decision and us leaving that church. And I remember my pastor being shocked. He was a friend of mine. I was serving as an intern. We were peers in some way. We were colleagues in some way. And 
he was shocked and he was hurt. And I don't know that at the time I fully understood his hurt. Let me tell you, I do now. (laughs) I've experienced a lot of abandonment in my life. A lot of abandoned relationships. A lot of people who just disappear. And for someone who is sensitive to abandonment and who really feels broken by being abandoned, pastoring is like the worst possible career you could take. Because people tend to just leave churches. Just walk away. And and you could have long-term relationships with these people. And because we approach church selfishly in an American context and because we approach it in a consumer way, we don't think about the relationships that we harm when we just leave a church all too often. Now, that sounds like a hard indictment, but that was my attitude. So, so the, their fingers pointing right back at me in this. That's why I'm confessing to you. I left so poorly. In fact, I wrote an email to that pastor this morning because I realized I had never apologized for that. So th- this very morning, I wrote him an email and said, hey, man, I am so sorry for the way that we left. That was all me. It was all my selfishness. It was all my focus on my own career, on my own path forward. It was, it was all self-centered. Didn't have anything to do with him, didn't have anything to do with the church necessarily. It was all me. Because I was thinking about me. I wasn't thinking about my friendships there. I wasn't thinking about what it was going to mean to to my pastor and my friend. I wasn't thinking about what our transition was going to mean for them. I was thinking about what our transition meant for us and for our future. And maybe it was right to go. Maybe we did need to go but we didn't need to go that way. There are times in our lives when we need to transition, we need to move on, we need to build different relationships, things are going to change, but we don't have to do that badly. And I did that badly. And as someone who has felt the sting of abandonment so many times in my life, I tend to approach relationships very tentatively. I tend to assume everybody's going to walk away at some point. That's just how I feel about the world. And I love you, and some of you are dear friends of mine, and there's still a part of me now that wonders when you're going to walk away from me. Am I alone in this? Does anybody else feel that way? Does anybody else feel that way about relationships? Like, when are you going to leave me? Because I know it's going to happen eventually. When are you going to go? I feel secure in my marriage, I feel secure with my kids, but when it comes to friends, I think we have such a watered-down definition of what a friend is that we don't even realize the harm we're doing to people when we abandon friendships, when we step away from friendships. And yet the Bible presents a very different idea of friendship. I mean, we live in a world where friendship is, is defined by the friend request You may have hundreds of friends you've never actually met in person, you've never had a real conversation with, and this is, I'm afraid, what has come to define friendship for us more often than not, is acquaintances. We have the real relationships, our spouses, our families, and then we have friends who all too often are disposable. Now, maybe this is my jaded, cynical take on the modern notion of friendship. Maybe I'm wrong. I've seen people who have really great friendships. I've seen people who have really committed, loving friendships that are more like family than just just friend in that watered-down way. And I've always been jealous of that, but I've always been afraid of it. 
Because if I get too close to you, then when you abandon me, it's going to hurt even more. And yet I just confessed, I've done the abandoning too. I've done the walking away. Because I didn't realize what my friendship meant to somebody. I didn't realize what my relationship to them meant to them. I was only thinking about the relationship to me. When we approach friendship selfishly or self-centered, we, we don't imagine what we mean to the other person. For some of us, that feels prideful. For some of us, it feels arrogant to think that I matter that much to someone else. But let me tell you now, it is not arrogant to think that you matter to your friends. It is not prideful to think that you matter to the people who love you and who say I love you, to the people who are committed to you. It is not arrogant or prideful to think of them in your relationship and what you might mean to them. You see, I think a lot of our fear of abandonment abandonment is we have such a low view of ourselves and what we mean to other people that we don't think anything of leaving these because we think I can't matter that much to someone because I don't matter that much. And so we can walk away or we can be abandoned because we honestly don't think we're worthy of the love that our friends have to give. This is one of the reasons I love the Lord of the Rings. I like fantasy and stuff anyway. I am that nerd, and it's okay. But one of the reasons I love the Lord of the Rings so much is because it presents a view of friendship that is almost entirely foreign to the world we live in now. In fact, a lot of people look at the relationship between Frodo and Sam, who from the very beginning are best friends and head off on this grand adventure that's going to span all three of these books. They look at the relationship between Frodo and Sam, and because that kind of friendship is so foreign to our world, people assume they must be gay. They must be lovers. Because how can you be that devoted to a friend? How can you be that connected? Or, worse, people look at, in the Bible and they look at the relationship between King David and Jonathan, the son of Saul, the prince of Israel. And they look at them and they assume this must be an erotic relationship because there's no way two men can be this close. I mean, go read First and Second Samuel. Read about the relationship between David and Jonathan. It's a kind of intimacy and depth of friendship that we just don't know because we're so afraid of homoeroticism. Or we're so afraid that we're going to be labeled or we're going to be looked at or worse we're afraid that the other person doesn't want that kind of friendship with me and so I may want it but my insecurity keeps me from pursuing a deep deep friendship with someone because I assume there's no way they would want that kind of relationship with me and so we keep them at arm's length because we're afraid of abandonment all of this gets wrapped up and I think this is what Jesus counters here Jesus presents to us in these verses a view of friendship that is so much deeper, so much more intimate, so much more real than our current definitions of friendship. Than our watered down, weak idea of what friends are. You see, biblically, friend love is not some weak thing. Friend love is not acquaintanceship. Friend love is not just, I, I, I know your voice and I know your name. It's not just, I've seen you over Facebook. It's not just, I've watched your family grow on Instagram. It's not just, I keep you at a distance and observe your life. Friend love, biblically, is deeply involved. Friend love, biblically, is, is sacrificial and committal. And that's what we see here in John chapter 15. 
Jesus is telling these verses, as, as Terry read for us, this portion of Jesus' speech here in John 15 is in the context of Jesus saying, I am the true vine and you are the branches. Now that's weird, right? Like, what does it mean to be a branch? Well, Jesus, a vine? Like, I don't, I don't understand that. Jesus is reaching back into the history of Israel here. He's reaching back into the history of the people of God, where over and over in the Old Testament, the people of God are envisioned as a vine, as a grapevine, as God's vineyard. And they are the ones who are producing the fruit of God in the world. And they're the vineyard that God tends over and over, especially in the Psalms. This imagery of the people of God as a vineyard in the world. A rich, lush vineyard that God protects and God cultivates. Is, shows up over and over in the Psalms. And Jesus is reaching back and he's picking up on that imagery. And what he's saying is, it's not the nation that's the vine. It's not the geopolitical thing that is Israel, that is the vineyard of God. Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine. I am God come. It's only by being connected to me, the root of the vine, that you can bear fruit. That you can become the vineyard of God. And because Jesus is the true vine, it doesn't matter if you're born a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're born into the nation of Israel. As long as you are grafted into Jesus, as long as you're connected to Jesus, the true root, the true vine, then you can be a part of God's vineyard. One of these that God has adopted and through whom God bears fruit in the world. So he's reaching back to that and Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine, therefore remain in me. This word remain shows up over and over and over and over again in these texts. It's the Greek word meno, and it means remain or to commit, kind of, to stick to it. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine. Remain in me. Come connect to me. Be committed to me. Be with me, and then you will be the true vine. You'll be the branches. You'll be the ones that produce God's fruit in the world if you just remain in me, remain connected. Now, just prior to saying, I'm the true vine, Jesus says, on the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as the Father commanded me. And then he goes on to talk about being the true vine and remaining in him. Now, this verse right before this passage on the true vine is important because Jesus is setting the groundwork. Jesus is saying, I love the Father, therefore I do what the Father tells me. I love the Father, therefore I remain in him. I love him, and I do what the Father tells me to do. I do what he commands me to do. He's setting this up because Jesus will tell us in these verses in John 15 that to remain in him means to love him and to obey him just as Jesus loves and obeys the Father. He's setting up a parallel here where he's telling his followers, all you have to do, what, to, what remaining in me looks like is loving me and obeying me. And then he reiterates this command he gave back in John 13 when Jesus said, I'm giving you a new command that you love one another just as I have loved you. And so Jesus in these verses lays out what it means to remain in him by saying, love me, obey me, and the command I want you to obey is to love one another. Now this is all just a way of restating those two foundational rules of the Christian life, love God and love people. 
This is Jesus making a parable out of those two statements, love God and love people. That's the context through which Jesus is now talking. That's how we get then to verse 9, where Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. To remain is to love and obey Jesus. And to obey Jesus is to love his people, just as Jesus has loved God's people. It's that simple. It really is. We want to complicate things. We want to add conditions to this. And yes, there are things that need conditions. There are are guardrails that we need to protect the faith, to, to understand that we're truly following the God who is. But at the end of the day, it boils down to this. Love Jesus and obey him by loving other people the way that he has loved them. That's the whole of the Christian faith. That's the whole of of what this is about. And if we love this way, if we follow Jesus in his command to love, if we live in his love, if we remain in Jesus by loving him and obeying him and loving his people, then this is the path to joy. Listen to this words. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Now, there are two ways to understand this this phrase when Jesus says, so that my joy may be in you. There are two ways to understand that. One is that when we follow Jesus, when we love as Jesus has loved, then the joy that belongs to him, his joy, becomes our joy. He gives us his joy. Joy. So Jesus says, the path to joy is loving me and loving people. You want to be a joyful person? Love people. You ever met a miserable person who loves people well? You ever met an angry person who loves people well? It doesn't happen. You ever met somebody who loves people well who isn't joyful? It doesn't happen. You cannot live in a state of joy and not love people. And you can't love people and not be joyful. Those two things are inextricably linked. This is the way Bob Goff put it. Bob Goff says, when joy is a habit, love is a reflex. You could turn it right around and say the exact opposite. When love is our habit, then joy is our reflex. Those two things are inextricably linked. They cannot be separated. Joy and love, love and joy. Now, the other way to understand this, when Jesus says that my joy may be in you, is that Jesus may delight in you, that Jesus may get joy from those who love well. Have you ever thought that you can make God happy? Have you ever thought that with the way you live your life, you can delight God? So many of us think of God as this impassive, impassable being up in the sky who just kind of feels what he feels or maybe doesn't feel at all. You might be one of those people who's like, God can't have emotions because he's beyond that. You've made God some huge brain in the sky who has no feelings. And yet, biblically, we know God has feelings. God feels more deeply than you or I ever could. And one way of reading this is that Jesus is saying, when you love well, my joy is in you. I take joy in you. I delight in you. And what Jesus delights in, God delights in. 
Because Jesus can't delight in anything that doesn't delight the Father. What Jesus takes joy in, God takes joy in. When we love one another well, we make God smile. We make God happy. We delight God. We bring joy to God when we love one another well, when we obey Jesus. His joy is in us. Meaning that he both delights in us and he gives us his joy. Christians ought to be the most joyful, happy people on the face of the earth. There's no room for a miserable Christian. In fact, I would wonder if a miserable Christian is really a Christian. Can you be miserable and know the great grace of God? Can you be angry all the time and know the great grace and love of God? Now, there will be seasons in our life when things are hard. There will be seasons in our life when things are difficult and we're not feeling that joy. Yes. But to be consistently miserable and angry with the world, not for a season, but as a lifestyle, is antichrist. It's anti the gospel. It's opposed to everything that Jesus has come to, to draw us into. Because those who love well know joy. And those who are joyful love well. And to obey Jesus is to love. To obey Jesus is to love one another. To commit to one another. To love one another as Jesus has loved us. This is the picture of love that Jesus is laying down before us. That we would be joyful lovers of one another. And that we would love as he has loved us. And that's what these last verses are about in this passage. 12 to 17. Where Jesus is now displaying for us what his love looks like. And so he reiterates his command. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. He's restated it now a couple of times. Beginning in John 13, when he says, the new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. And now in verse 12, he's restating that. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And so first, Jesus' love is sacrificial. And notice, that when Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, he doesn't say then to lay down your life for your spouse, for your children, for your family, for your nation, for any of those things that define you. He says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down your life for your friends. Tell me that's a weak definition of friendship. Tell me that Jesus agrees with our watered-down definitions of friendship here. Jesus says, no one can love you more than to lay down their life for you. No one can love you more than to lay down their life for a friend. Now, many of us might say, yeah, I'd take a bullet for them. Or, yeah, if, if we're in this risky situation, I might jump in the way to save someone's life. Many of us in this room would, would say something along those lines. But I want to challenge us, instead of thinking only in, in abstract terms about the end of life as laying down one's life, what sacrifices are you making to love your friends well right now? Because, yeah, I can say all day, 
that I would lay down my life for someone, that I, would, that I would give my life for someone, that if Terry were at risk tomorrow and I was there and could do something about it, I would do it. I can say that as much as I want, but it's going to remain an abstract. The concrete reality of my life now displays whether that is true. The things we choose to do right now for our friends will show whether our exclamation that we would lay down our life for someone is true or not. Are you sacrificing for your friends now? Are you laying down your life for your friends now? Well, here's a simple one. Here's an easy one. Neither my wife and I are very good housekeepers. If you've ever been to our house, you know this. We do what we can. We maintain the house. It's not like we're a hoarder house, you know, and it's, you're not going to get sick walking in, but it's never going to be Instagram perfect. It's never going to be the house that you walk in and you want to model your house after. It's just not. And so sometimes being hospitable and having people over means sacrifice because we got to clean that house in a way that we're not used to doing, in a way that we don't normally do. But we do it to have people over. It's a small sacrifice. It's a teeny, tiny sacrifice. But if we were really selfish, we would say, you know, I don't want to have anybody over because I really don't want to deal with this mess. Now, we also have a five, a five and an eight-year-old, so just put that in your pocket. Remember that, okay? Don't judge us too harshly. We do have small children and a dog. Um, but it's a small sacrifice to say, I will clean this mess and make my home presentable for my friends. Or, my friend has some serious need that requires real giving of myself. Now, I could make the sacrifice to share with them, to give to them. Or I could say, you know, I can't really afford to do that. I can't really afford that. Well, that's what a sacrifice is. I can't really afford it. But I'll give it anyway. If it doesn't hurt it's not a sacrifice. What are we sacrificing for our friends? Are we making our declarations that we would die for them true in the everyday stuff of our lives right now? Am I making space for friends now? Am I carving out time? Am I giving up some of my margin for my friends to have? And I know for some people this is easier than for others. There are some people who desperately need their alone time and their quiet time, and you can't have that invaded because you'll be no good to anybody else if you don't get your time away. I get that. You need that. But to sacrifice for you might mean carving out some of that time and saying, I'll give it to you. Do your friends know that, you matter to, that they matter to you? When we start living sacrificially for our friends, there's no way they'll be able to believe that they don't really matter to us. When we carve out time and we sacrifice for their good, there's no way they'll be able to believe that they don't matter. And we'll close that abandonment gap. Friend love is sacrificial, just as Jesus' love for us is sacrificial. It gives so that it hurts to proclaim the value of our friendships, to proclaim the love that we have for one another. When we carve into our time and our comforts in order to make space for our friends to show them love, we proclaim their value and worth. 
Friend love is sacrificial. Friend love is also committed. Jesus goes on and he says, I don't call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. Jesus' love chooses the beloved and lets them in. Jesus says, I'm not calling you servants anymore. You're my friends because I've told you my plans. I've let you in to the most intimate secret of my life. I've let you into my relationship with the Father. I've told you what God has told me. I've told you what my mission and what my plan is. You are my friends because I've let you in. I've drawn you in. And you didn't choose me. I picked you as my beloved. It's another way of translating the word that's translated friend here. It's philon in Greek. It's, it's beloved love. Jesus says, you're my beloved. I've chosen you as my friends, and then I let you in because real friend love lets people in. I mean, this is a lesson for me, right? Who keeps people at an arm's length, who says, you can come this close, and I'll be really, really, really nice to you, but I'm not entirely sure I'm going to let you this close. I'm not sure I'm going to let you fully in because I'm afraid you're not as committed to me as I want to be to you. And yet, have you seen Jesus' relationship with his apostles? Have you seen his relationship with his disciples? Oh, Jesus knows beyond the shadow of a doubt they are not as committed to him as he is to them. Jesus knows completely that these men are not as committed to him as he is to them. And he lets them in. And he calls them friend. He chooses them. Despite knowing they will abandon him. Despite knowing that at the cross there are only going to be five people there. Despite knowing what they're going to do. Despite knowing that Peter's going to deny him and walk away. Jesus says, I chose you. And I keep choosing you. I'm never not going to choose you. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're one who knows his love, who's been transformed by his grace, he chose you and he keeps choosing you, though you keep abandoning him. He chose me and he keeps choosing me, despite the fact that I have abandoned him time and time and time again. And he keeps pursuing me, because that's what Jesus' love does. Jesus' love is not self-centered. It chooses the one who will abandon him. And this is a lesson for me. To choose friend love. To choose people over and over, even when they've abandoned me. Or when I've abandoned them. To confess and to repent and to turn around and to choose them again. Let me clarify, this does not mean you keep going back to abusers. This does not mean you keep going back to people who hurt you over and over and show no repentance. This does not mean you go to people who are going to oppress you and put you down and abuse you. But this does mean that when your friend messes up, when your friend in remorse comes back and says, I'm sorry for that thing I did, or when your friend goes dark, and you haven't heard from them in weeks. 
or when your friend rejects that invitation you gave them, you don't say, well, I'm done with you. You don't walk away. We continually choose the beloved, just as Jesus has continually chosen us. We continually choose to stay committed because friend love is committed love. It's committed in the way that Jesus is committed to us. It's committed to the good of our friends, to the good of those relationships. It's committed to being like Jesus in the relationships that we have and not letting them go. But continually choosing to remain. To remain with Jesus, to remain in love with him is to remain with one another. To remain in our love for each other. To be truly, deeply committed to the love that we share through Jesus Christ. And God will give us the resources to overcome the abandonment, to overcome the hurt. That's why he gives us his Holy Spirit. You see, this text, this passage here where Jesus is is encouraging his followers to love as he has loved, to remain in him and to love just as he has sacrificially and committally loved them, comes right in the middle of Jesus' promise to give the Holy Spirit. It comes right in the center of Jesus promising, hey, I've got to go away, but I'm going to send you the Spirit of God to live in you and to empower you to obey me, to do the things that I've done. And so Jesus doesn't expect that we can love this way on our own. He knows that we can't. Jesus doesn't expect us to just pull our britches up and try really hard to love people well and to overcome the hurt that comes with friend love. Jesus is saying, right in the middle of these passages, I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you God's very Holy Spirit to empower you to live as I'm calling you to live, to empower you to obedience. And so our task is not to just grit our teeth and try really hard. Our task is not just to to you know, pull up our pants and pull up our bootstraps and say, yes, I'm going to love really well right up until the moment I get really hurt again. Our task is to lean into Jesus. You see, we've got to know that we are loved before we can love well. We've got to root ourselves in the sacrificial, committal love of Jesus long before we can love as he has loved. If we haven't experienced that love, how can we give it? If we haven't known that love, how can we share it? If we haven't felt that love, if we haven't had our identities rooted in the grace of Jesus Christ, in the sacrificial love of God himself that says you are worth more than you could ever possibly imagine, and you are stronger because of the Holy Spirit than you could ever possibly hope for, if we have not rooted ourselves in our identity in who God calls us, in who Jesus has called us through the cross and resurrection and ascension. If we are not rooted in Christ, we can't love like him. And that's what his Holy Spirit does for us. Roots everything that we are in who Jesus says we are. So that we can know the love of God for us. And we can then spread that love to others. We can love as Jesus has loved because we've experienced and known his love and because we now have the Spirit of God living within us to motivate us to that love, 
to overcome all of our weaknesses, to overcome all of our objections, to overcome all of the hurt we've felt and the abandonment that we've experienced. That will give us the confidence to pursue relationships with people. Not obnoxiously. Not going after them long after they've said, no, that's not what I want. But the confidence to approach other people and assume and hope that they want a friendship as badly as you do. That they need love as badly as you do. That they need Christ as badly as you do. That they need the gospel as badly as you do. To know who we are in Christ. And to know who others are. To know that we're on the same playing field. All lonely. All broken sinners in need of a Savior who will love us unconditionally. And who calls us to himself. That everyone is fighting a hard battle and therefore we love and are compassionate toward everyone. And so here are some really practical things to do with this. First, root yourself in who God calls you. And to do that, you've got to know Jesus. You've got to know who he is and what he has said. If nothing else, read these red letters, but read the rest of it too. Read the stories of Jesus. Know what he says about you. Know what God calls you. Root yourself in Jesus. Root yourself in Jesus Christ so that you can love as he has. Pray for God's Holy Spirit to fill you up. To give you supernatural resources to love that you didn't know existed. Seek healing for the abandonment and hurt that you felt. Seek the healing that you need for the brokenness in yourself through the gospel of Jesus, through the healing work of God's Holy Spirit, and through a therapist too. Whatever it takes to bring you to full health, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, so that you're capable of loving the way that Jesus is calling us to love here. Seek the healing resources that God has given us through the scripture, through the Holy Spirit, through counseling. Seek wholeness for yourself so that you can love another well. And then this week, a really simple bar to to get over. Send a meaningless, not meaningless, send a just because note to somebody. Text message, phone call, written note. Look through your contacts on your phone. Find that person you haven't connected with in a while, or that person you may have some beef with, or has beef with you, the person you're feeling abandoned with because they rejected that invitation some time ago, or because they didn't show up when you wanted them to, and just send them a note. That'll go a long way. Just a thinking of you note. We all know what those things mean to us, but we always think that they don't mean as much to other people because we think we don't mean anything to them. But I promise you, if you just take the time to type out a note or write a handwritten note or give a phone call to someone who isn't expecting it, it'll mean a lot to them. And finally, finally, pray for your friends. Pray for your enemies. Pray for the people around you. Make a list. Pray by name. 
and never, ever, ever pray anything negative for anybody. Always pray for the good and blessing of everybody you pray for. Make a list of the people to pray for. Pray for them by name and seek God's good for them. Seek God's best for them. Pray that they would know who they are in Jesus. Pray that they would know the love of God. Seek their good. Most importantly, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the sacrificial love of Jesus. Keep your eyes on the love of God for you. Know who you are in Christ because of what he has done for you. Because God came in the flesh and lived among us and experienced all the pain that the world has to give to the point that it killed him. But he overcame it in his resurrection and he now lives and rules as our good and gracious king who longs for nothing more than to draw us into relationship with him, to make us whole. Root yourself in that in the gospel of Jesus. And if you've never given yourself to Jesus before, if you've never laid your life down before Jesus and said, I am yours, then now is the moment to do it. Today is the moment to say, Jesus, I want to belong to you. I want to know this kind of love. I want to know this kind of sacrificial committal friend love. I want to know that I'm worth more than I ever imagined. I want to know that your love can overcome all of the brokenness within me and all of the brokenness I've experienced from the world. I want to know, God, the depth of your love and the transforming power of your spirit. So let's pray today. God, Today, we truly do want to know the power of your love. We want to know the transforming power of your Holy Spirit. We want to know this friend love. And I pray, Lord, that today you would root us deeply in the love of Christ. You would root us deeply in the forgiveness that is ours through the gospel of Jesus. And that, Holy Spirit, you would empower us to walk forward in friend love, to give this kind of love to everyone we meet. Jesus, help us to become more like you. Holy Spirit, form us into the image of Christ so that we can be vessels and agents of your love, your transforming power. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org. 